Our passage is from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Christ the Lord is risen today. That is the proclamation that we are making. That is what we are remembering. That is what we are celebrating. And it's my joy to be able to come with you in just a moment to, to look at the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this one specific story that we see mentioned here in John chapter 20. Now, before we get into it, I wonder if any of you had nicknames growing up. If any of you were given a nickname when you grew up, maybe when you were in school or maybe when you got to college, maybe you have nicknames that you're not proud of. Maybe you have a nickname that you don't want to share with anybody. I've shared in the past that I had nicknames growing up. One of my nicknames was Butterball, and uh, I was called Butterball not because I was kind of round and chubby, but because I was one time supposedly, no proof or evidence, eating a stick of butter when they found me, and, uh, and so... Um, I got known as, as Butterball, but uh, every nickname uh, that's given typically has a story attached to it, and there are a lot of people today that only go by their nicknames, um, some of which uh, you know only by their nicknames, like uh, Paul Hewson. Anybody know Paul Hewson, better known as the frontman for the band U2? Bono. We know Bono, but we don't know Paul Hewson, and that was the name that he was born with. Then you got other names that are from way back when. You have Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. He was still originally born George Herman Ruth, but then he just he got the nickname Babe, and it, and it stuck with him. Or we all know Tiger Woods, right? Real name is Eldrick, but he goes by the nickname Tiger because that was the name of one of his father's uh, compatriots when they were fighting in the war. Magic Johnson. A lot of people, they go by these different nicknames. Uh, uh, a guy I played baseball with growing up, um, the first time I met him, I said, hey, my name's Dave. What's your name? And he's like, my name is Newbie. And I'm like, Newbie? I'm like, I'm like, all right, let's go with this. And I'm like, so how did you get that name? He says, well, when I was born, I was continually referred to as the new baby. You know, well, there's the new baby. There's a new baby. And so I can't remember if it was one of his cousins or one of his siblings who just thought that his name was literally newbie. And, uh, and so that was the name that he, he grew up with. Well, the text that we're looking at this morning, the reason why I talk about nicknames is because every nickname 
typically has a story behind it. And today we come to this section of God's word and events immediately following the resurrection from G of Jesus Christ from the dead, where we encounter a guy who down through the ages has been come to be known in the church as Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. That was the scripture that we just heard read. It's from that story that down through the ages, he came to be known as Doubting Thomas. Not a nickname that I think if he were alive today with us, he would appreciate being referred to by, but nonetheless, the nickname that he has been given by the church. What I want to do this morning with you is I want to look at why is it that we call him Doubting Thomas, but this isn't just a, a time to explore the, the story behind his name, but how actually the story of, of how he got his name ultimately points us to how you and I can ultimately have belief in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection and how transformative believing in Christ can, can be. And so that's what I want to look at with you this morning. And so are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? Well, we're going to look at it. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you underneath. If you don't have a Bible to take home, please take that Bible as our gift to you. We're going to pick the story up here in verse 24. And I say we're going to pick the story up, but again, what you're reading is not fiction, it is proclaimed to be a real historical event. So what do we see? Starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now pause there. What's happening? What, what's the event surrounding this? What we're reading is taking place on Sunday night, late Sunday night of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Earlier that morning, the Gospels here tell us that women went to the tomb to go and prepare Jesus' body, to put perfumes and put spices on his body because they believed that Jesus was dead in the grave because they saw him crucified, they saw his side pierced, they saw him taken off the cross dead, and they saw him buried. And so they're going back three days after his, him being put in the tomb to go and to prepare his body. But when they get there, we learn from the story that they see that the stone is rolled away from the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, she runs back to tell the disciples, the stone's been rolled away from the tomb. What's going on? So Peter and John come running to the tomb. And when they get there, John gets there first. He stops, but Peter rushes in. And sure enough, they look inside, and the body of Jesus is gone. Now, these followers of Jesus, they're devastated already. They believe that he has died, and now some sicko has come and taken away his body. Crushing, just absolutely crushing. And so Peter and John, they go back, and they go to, it says, back to their own homes. And Mary stays around, and while she stays around, two angels appear to Mary, and they say to her, because she's, she's bawling at what has taken place, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14 of chapter 20, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what it she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
She has been devastated, but she turns and Jesus is there to greet her. And she doesn't recognize him at first, probably because of her tears and then most likely because of his glorified body. But she recognizes it's him because he calls her by name. And she immediately goes back, per the words of Jesus, to tell the disciples, I've seen Jesus risen from the dead. And she goes and she tells the disciples, this has happened. And in that room where the disciples have been locked up for fear of the Jews coming and getting them, they all of a sudden have this faint flicker of hope. They had thought he was dead. And now Mary, Peter and John, they saw the tomb was empty. But now Mary says, no, 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 he was empty because he's not there. He's risen from the dead. And so what happens? Well, the text says that later that night, Jesus comes into that locked room. He appears in their midst and he says, peace be with you. And he appears to all the disciples in that room. And all of a sudden that small flicker of hope turns into this eternal flame of hope because now they all see him as risen from the dead. The one who they thought was no longer with them is actually alive. And so they're overjoyed, except for one. <laughs> you see, because there was one person who wasn't there. And that's where our story picks up. Verse 24 Thomas wasn't with them. That's what the text says. He was not with them, verse 24, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord for reasons not explained in the text. I'm thinking that he probably went out for supplies for everybody. You know, uh, it's like rather than sending out a crowd, just one of us go and get some things. Thomas isn't there when Jesus appears, and so he misses out on seeing Jesus. When he left that room, everybody was like devastated. You know, have you ever been in a place like that where, you know, people are mourning and they're sad and, or they're conflicted? You know, has Jesus really risen? They don't know what to make of it. You know, he comes back, they're all smiling. Thomas, you won't believe it. He was here. We saw him. It wasn't just what Mary said. We all saw him. Now, you have to understand, Thomas had spent three years with these people. These are some of his closest friends. They had enjoyed life together and life with Jesus and as you read this story, you should anticipate that Thomas would get excited, but that's not what happens. Look at what it says. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, ooh, gross, <laughs> and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, it's from this response that down through the ages, Thomas has been known as Doubting Thomas. His best friends are telling him, it's not just Mary. I mean, one person might get it wrong, but you got the evidence of all these people, and they're saying, we saw him. He's alive. Thomas says, unless I get the same experience, including sticking my fingers physically into his body so that I know it's him, I will never believe and here's where I want to draw our attention to something. Listen, he's been known as Doubting Thomas, but I think that's a misnomer. I don't think that's a great, you know, the correct way to think about Thomas at this season. Does it say that he doubted them? No. He says, I will never what? Believe. He's disbelieving Thomas. There's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. You see, doubt, it's a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction about something. I'm not too sure whether or not this is, this is true. Disbelief, which is what unbelief, which is what Thomas had, it's a rejection. It's a flat-out rejection of the validity or truthfulness of something. I do not believe it. I reject that claim. 
Doubt is like, I don't know whether or not I believe the claim. Doubt is, unbelief is, I totally reject it. Let me give you a story of the difference between unbelief and doubt. Some people that I know, well, first off, have you ever tried to put a kid to bed at night? I've often talked about this. If you have kids or or you've had kids, you know that bedtime is one of the most joyous times in any household. You know, they, they get in there, can you come give me a kiss? And, you know, it's beautiful. And then, no, it typically, it's like, all right, get to bed, do these things. And, and children have this amazing way of getting every disease at, after 8 o'clock at night. You know, my stomach hurts, I have a tumor, I don't know. You know, they're like always, like, delaying to go to bed. And so, and so often, you know, they're making these excuses and, and you know, you, you often doubt your child, right, you know? Um, well, one night, some people I know, they were coming back home from being out together with their kids, and they come home from dinner. They come into the house, and they tell all of the kids to get ready for bed, and their kids are getting ready for bed. And one of the kids, as far as I remember the story, <clears throat> he gets ready for bed, goes into his room, and he comes out. And he goes, he says, you know, Mom, Dad, <laughs> there's a person under my bed. And the parents are like, Okay, now now we're going to look at like doubt or unbelief, right? Doubt would have you go in to your child and say, okay, let's go look and see, you know, and peek underneath the bed. Unbelief would have you say, get back in bed, there's not somebody there. Well, because these are godly parents, they decided to go ahead and not disbelieve their child, but instead doubt their child. So they went into the room, and they go and they look underneath the bed, And sure enough, there was a man underneath their boy's bed. When they had gotten home that day, somebody had broken into the house and just broken in and didn't have time to get out. And so he went and he hid underneath the bed. They left the room. The man went out the window and everybody ended up being safe and they they got the guy. But can you imagine? See, unbelief of your child in that situation would have looked like just go to bed, all right? Go back into your room and you don't go and check. Doubt is what they had. Really, there's a guy underneath your bed. I'm still going to put you to bed. Let me go check it out. And sure enough, they found a man was there. Listen, when we look at this story, when Thomas hears about Jesus, he's not just like, you know what? I'm not too sure if what you're telling me is true. He says, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. He did not believe. And this is where we come to one of the the first things about this story that I I want us to, to discuss for a moment. And that is this. I love how true and how genuine God's word is. I love how, how human God's word is, how it doesn't try and put the, the disciples and followers of Jesus on a pedestal. It, it doesn't try and make them other than who they actually are because what Thomas shows us is the true human response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think the first true human response to the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it can be hard to believe. It can be hard to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see it in Thomas's reaction, it can be hard to believe. Like, he doesn't sugarcoat it. If you were going to write a story about the events around Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, I think you would write it that would demonstrate that everybody was believing everything that was taking place. It would glamorize their experience. Instead, Look, it's not just Thomas that didn't believe that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. On Sunday morning, how many of the disciples went to the tomb to see if Jesus had risen from the dead? 
None were there. The women had gone because they had perfumes and spices to prepare a dead man's body. None of his followers, although Jesus had told them on multiple occasions, I will die and I will rise, none of them actually expected this to happen. And the reason for that is simple. People do not rise from the dead. That's just not the human experience. Back then or today, we sometimes have what I like to call this modern snobbery where we, where we think that something like the accounts of Jesus' life were easier for people back then to believe than they are today. But the truth is, think about it, they didn't have the medical advances that we have today. They, they didn't have the ability to, to bring someone whose heart had stopped like back to, to life. The idea that someone could be dead in a tomb three days was just as unfathomable to them as it was to us or as it is to us today that that person dead three days could rise again. I mean, there's stories about people being misdiagnosed as having died. Uh, a very popular story that took place in 2018 was a man named Gonzalo Montoya Jimenez. He was 29. He was serving a prison sentence in a Spanish prison. And Jimenez, one morning during roll call, January 7th, 2018, they went to his cell and they saw him sitting in a chair slumped over. And they brought in the medical doctor there and they checked him out and the medical doctor pronounced Jimenez dead on sight. And then they ultimately brought the, the medical team in to take his body away. They examined the body and they said that he was dead. They put him in a body bag. They brought him to a hospital mortuary. They actually marked his body with, a, with where they were gonna use the scalpel marks for the autopsy. They put him in a cooler and then they brought him back out of that cooler sometime later. And while they took him out from that cooler as he was, as he was laying there, the technicians were going about their work when all of a sudden they heard snoring in the room and it freaked them out. And they're like, where is that coming from? And they looked and there was snoring coming from the body bag. And it was Jimenez. He hadn't actually died. His body and his pulse rate had gotten so low that it was, that it was misdiagnosed at the time. And so all that time he had actually been alive, including the time in the cooler. And somehow he had survived that. Needless to say, when this report came out, they, they asked the prison, you know, for a comment, and their reply was, no comment, because <laughs> somebody dropped the ball. So yes, people can be misdiagnosed, but somebody actually dying and raising, yeah, I get it. I get Thomas while you're like, I won't believe unless I, I see him. But then there's this other aspect of it. It's, it's, it's hard to believe the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ because, you know, people just don't rise from the dead. That's not our experience overall. But there's another reason. Do you see how Thomas says to the disciples, unless I can see him and put my hands into the wounds, I won't believe That's kind of a weird thing. Is every, from the time I was little, I grew up in the church, you know, but I was just like, Who's asking that? I don't, I'm not good around blood, period. Like, you know, cut my foot, I almost passed out. Like, I'm just not like, who wants to do that? What's he asking? Why is Thomas, have you ever wondered this? Well, there's a couple of things that are going on here that are, I think, significant for us to consider. When Thomas says, I want to put my hands into the wounds, at minimum, what he's saying is, I want to tick off the box that what you guys saw was not somebody pretending to be Jesus. 
Because there could be somebody saying that, they're the, that he's the resurrected Jesus. But the Jesus I saw go in the grave, he's got some scars that you can't miss. And so he, so he wants to validate that it's not just a, an imposter. He also wants to validate the fact that this isn't just a, a ghost, an, an apparition, that they all had some kind of crazy vision together. They were hallucinating because of what Mary had said. But I think there's something even deeper than all of those reasons. If Thomas sees a physical resurrected Jesus with wounds, then it would mean you have to accept everything Jesus said about himself. Let me parse this for us. If Jesus is actually there, physically resurrected with the wounds, if he can verify a physically resurrected Jesus, do you want to know why it would be hard for Thomas to believe the resurrection? Because Jesus, during his life, had proclaimed himself to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Not just a good philosopher, not just a good teacher. He said, I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies. I am Emmanuel, God with us. That would mean that Jesus was actually God. And although the disciples and Peter had proclaimed Jesus to be the son of God, the very concept that Jesus actually was God in the flesh, no one had experienced it. And if Thomas saw Jesus resurrected with wounds, then that meant that he was who he said he was. You know, this past week, as I was reflecting upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I looked at Jesus's trial before Caiaphas. And one of the very last things that Jesus ever spoke before the crucifixion was this proclamation that he was God come to earth. You see, in Jesus' day, it was blasphemous and punishable by death to claim divinity for yourself, to claim that you were actually God. And during Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, they had tried to get these witnesses to cooperate and to ultimately give testimony against Jesus that he had done something blasphemous, and yet their testimonies never matched up. And so finally, out of frustration, Matthew 26 tells us that Caiaphas, the high priest, said to Jesus, because nobody else would speak a word that would lead to his condemnation, he said, I adjure you by the living God, Matthew 26, 63, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He wants to see, will Jesus actually answer me truthfully? Church, friends here today, if Jesus answers that question and says, I am who you say that I am, if Jesus says, yes, I am the son of God, that he would be speaking words that would convict him to death. Jesus had the choice. Jesus didn't go to the cross because of some sham trial. Jesus went to the cross because he boldly declared to the religious leaders, I am the Christ. He had the choice to remain silent and they didn't have enough evidence against him or to affirm what Caiaphas was asking of him. Did you ever know that? Jesus had the opportunity to remain silent, but here's what he did. Jesus spoke and said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, Jesus goes further, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. 
He comes and he says, I am who you said that I am. I am God come in the flesh. And you know what the high priest did at that moment? The text says he tore his robes and he said, this man is punishable by death. You see, because they understood it. If Jesus dies and raises from the dead, if Thomas actually sees him, then who he's looking at is not just Jesus, the good rabbi, the good teacher. He's looking at Jesus, God in the flesh. You want to know what turned the world upside down after Jesus rose from the dead? It was that his followers understood him to fully be who he was. And so here's, let me just pause for a quick moment and to say this. Do you know that when you today profess Jesus Christ and believe him to be resurrected from the dead, it's not just that Jesus Christ comes and says, by your belief in me, your sins are forgiven. It is that. It is that he died and he rose so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. But because he died and he rose, that was a validation of who he claimed to be. When you're dealing with Jesus, you're dealing with God. Not, not some teacher. You can't believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ and just accept him as a good teacher. He is who he claimed to be. And I believe that that was one of the reasons that Thomas, he was on the fence. He's like, could this really be, could it all absolutely be true? And sure enough, church, this story isn't just about how it can be hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a story that comes to us and it reveals to us what overcomes hearts of unbelief. Look at what the text goes on to say. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were inside. And again, Thomas was with them. This time Thomas is there. Eight days later though, the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Once again, you know, they're all there and then boom, Jesus is there. You know, and they're just like, oh, they're surprised. They're, they're startled and he sees their, how startled they are. And he's like, peace be with you. I'm amazed. I live in a home with, with four women and, and it's like they don't believe I actually live in the home with them because I'll come into rooms and they'll be there. They'll be like, oh, jeez. And I'm just like, what? You know that I'm here with you, all right? Like, why are you so surprised? They were rightly surprised. And Jesus says, peace be with you. Although he is in his resurrected body, that, that miracle of the resurrected body means that material walls, although he's still physical, he's able to pass through those walls and appear in that room. And then verse 27 says, then he immediately said to Thomas, he addresses everybody, but then quickly hones in on Thomas. He says to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but what? Believe. He speaks to Thomas and he asks Thomas to do the very thing that Thomas said he needed in order to believe. Now, Jesus, he wasn't there in his resurrected form when Thomas had said these words, but Jesus, as God, knew all things. And he knew what Thomas would need. And look at Thomas's response. Does Thomas touch him? Does Thomas stick his hands in his side? The text doesn't say that he did. All that it says is this. Thomas answered him, <clears throat> my Lord and my God. When you look at Thomas in verse 24, he says, I will never believe unless. 
But the Thomas of verse 28, he's not an unbelieving Thomas, is he? He is wholly invested and he says, do you see it now? My Lord and my what? God. Remember how I said earlier, what was one of the reasons why Thomas might have had a hard time believing the resurrection? Because it would mean that what? He is God. He is who he said he was. But friends, what changed? What moved him from unbelief to belief? Jesus says, stop disbelieving and now believe. What changed? He saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. He saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And I want to make a proposition to you right now. This right here is what overcomes belief. Not just for Thomas, but for us here today. What's my proposition? It's this. Looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ overcomes unbelief. Looking upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, examining the person and work of Jesus Christ overcomes unbelief. You see, that's what the story tells us with Thomas. He gave Thomas what he needed. He says, look on me and believe. And Thomas does. That's what moves him from unbelief to belief. He looked upon Jesus. He looked upon his person. He saw him, but he looked upon his work. How did he look upon the work of Jesus? He looked at the wounds. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a God with wounds. Do you know that? Christianity is the only religion where, the God said, where it says that the God came down to save, not that we had to do something to come up to him to be saved. He's a God with wounds. But it begs the question, most of us here today would say, uh, yeah, I'm going to be moved from unbelief to belief if I see a resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to be in with Thomas on that one. You have me. In fact, even now as a follower of Jesus Christ, tell me, as followers of Jesus Christ, do you always believe in Jesus? Not like I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but does unbelief still come into our hearts as followers of Jesus Christ at times? If we're really honest with ourselves, it creeps in when we wonder, God, did you hear my prayers? Are you actually capable of sustaining me through this thing? Am I really forgiven by you when I consider what I did there? Can unbelief creep into our own hearts? It's not just unbelief in the resurrection, but, it's, but it manifests. And so what helps us? If in those times where I'm wondering, God, can you answer my prayers, and Jesus appeared right there, I'd be like, oh, good, okay, he answers prayers. But I want to show you something. Look at what the text says. After Jesus appears to Thomas, look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And the answer is, yep. <laughs> yeah, saw you, believed. But then he goes on. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have what? Believed. Do you know what Jesus is actually saying there? He's telling us that belief without physically seeing Jesus is possible. He says, blessed are those who believe and yet never see. You do not have to have, Jesus says, an experience like Thomas had in order to actually believe in me. And the reason for that is because today, every single one of us can still look upon the person and work of Jesus. And you say, how do we do that? How's that possible? And by the way, he says that we will be blessed, 
meaning that we will walk away from looking upon Jesus' person and work and have the same experience as Thomas. And you'd be thinking, how is that possible? How can, how can we both have the same experience with Jesus? Look at verse 30. Immediately following this story, the very next words that are spoken to people who never get to have the experience like Thomas had are these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's all of these works that he did that are written in this book, but many that I didn't even include. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, do you see and hear what the promise, what the proclamation is being made? God's word comes and says, you don't need to look upon the person work of Jesus physically to believe because what has been given to us is the words. This very book is the confirmation of who Jesus is and what he came to do. These things are written so that you, like Thomas, would believe. God has provided for us in his word this picture of the life and the scope of the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this book, you can look upon Jesus and see him for who he really is. And for those that wonder, how can I actually trust this book? How can I actually believe that what's in this book is real? I say explore it, examine it, challenge it. Look at the different accounts of Jesus' life. You have to deal with the fact that ancient historians, men like Tacitus, men like Celsus, men like Pliny the Younger, they all spoke of the historicity of a man named Jesus who created a movement that went out into the world. These men weren't Christians, and yet they were proclaiming that a man named Jesus actually lived and died. How can we believe the words of this book? Because you could go back then and after these words were written, the names and the places are mentioned so people could go and explore whether or not the testimony in this book is true. Did you know that before Jesus and immediately after the life of Jesus, dozens of men had proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Israel to be the Messiah? Look this up. Examine it. Dozens of men claimed to be the Messiah. And they built up followings and people went after them. But every single one of their movements ended when those men died. All of those men who claimed to be the Messiah and who had crowds that followed them, none of those movements continued on after their death. Do you know why? Because they died. <laughs> And yet what happens after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? His is the only movement that spreads and grows and goes to the ends of the earth. Why would that be the case? It's because in those early days, think about it, when people heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, when they went back to explore, could this actually be true? They would talk to those that were in that region. They would say, yes, so-and-so lived here. Yes, this miracle happened here. If the things that the followers of Jesus had happened didn't happen, nobody would have believed. Just as a quick little short story. 
We know that in John's gospel, Jesus performed one of his greatest miracles when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Are you familiar with this story? He raised Lazarus from the dead in a city in a little village called Bethany. Do you know how close Bethany was to Jerusalem? It's about 1.5 miles, just literally right over the hill. You will go down a valley and you go up on the other side and there's the village of Bethany. You know how many people lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' life? 50 to 70,000 people. And so after Jesus rises from the dead and they start going around proclaiming Jesus as Lord and, and talking about the things that he did, you had 50,000 people to 70,000 people within a mile and a half of the town where Lazarus was raised from the dead who could literally walk. For, from literally my house to Colgrade Road is 1.7 miles. <laughs> like that distance is all somebody had to walk and they could go and they could say, did Lazarus live here? Oh yeah, Lazarus, he's right over there. What? And they're like, yeah, no. Did you rise? We can trust and believe this word. You can look upon Jesus. You can see who he is. It's why today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, cling to the word of God. When you begin to doubt, when you begin to move towards unbelief, come back to who Jesus proclaims himself to be. You know, Jesus said a lot of amazing things during his life. One of the things that he said over and over again in different ways was that in Jesus Christ, you could be completely satisfied. He told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of me will never be thirsty again. Look at the testimony of the lives around you. Look at the testimony of the lives of people throughout the ages and how they lived lives completely satisfied because their hope rested not in their work, not in relationships, but in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Belief without physically seeing Jesus is possible. And so my question is, look hard. I mean, look hard at Jesus as he reveals himself to be in his word. And when you look at him, when you explore him, you'll see the truthfulness, the validity of everything that this book proclaims. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who have never seen me yet believe. But you can believe because these things are written that you may. And why do, I, why do I point us to this story? It's ultimately because, friends, belief in Jesus leads to blessing. Belief in Jesus leads to blessing. Why does Jesus so desperately want Thomas to see and believe? Why does he want you to look upon his claims and believe? Because verse 29 says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You are blessed when you have believed in Jesus. But what does it mean? What is the blessing that we have? What does it mean to be blessed? Jesus comes here at the very end in his word and he says, look at verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. That's the blessing. Life. Life in his name. The implication is there is no life apart from him. We think about life scientifically, biologically. And so we say things like this. Plants, are they dead or alive? They're alive. We say they're alive. Ants, they're alive. Dogs and cats, I had to put both up there because I don't know where you fall, right? But dogs and cats, they are both alive. Look around the room. 
Everybody around here, some of you might be sleeping, but you're not dead. You're alive. <laughs> you're alive, but do you have life? You see, there's no life apart from Jesus. See, we are alive, but the scriptures say this. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are in bondage to sin. You already know that there's a difference between being alive and having a life. Anybody who's in prison is alive, but do they have life? They're constricted, they're constrained, they're in bondage. Scriptures say that you and I are in bondage to our desires, to our sins. We are the prisoners. But you want to be one who has life? You want to be free? That only comes through Jesus. There's a difference between being in bondage and being set free. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Do you have this life? We've been reading and studying the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians tells us that when you have life in Jesus Christ, you have feelings and you have emotions, but you are not controlled by them. Isn't that awesome? When you are in Jesus Christ, to have life means that nothing anyone else can give you is what, more than what Jesus has already given you. We're completely and utterly satisfied. We have the riches of Christ in us. It means that we are forgiven people. We have a debt that we have been freed from. So you don't owe me anything. I don't need to get anything from you to live in freedom and to have joy and to have peace because Jesus paid it all. Jesus has given me life. Do you have this life? It breaks my heart that so many people think that they are truly living when scripture says you cannot have life. And I'm not just talking eternal life in heaven. I'm talking about here and now and one day in fullness in heaven apart from Jesus. Do you have this life? Are you still in bondage? Are you blessed? And you want to know, have I moved from belief to unbelief? How, how do I know if I'm living in belief or not? Do you see the pronouncement of Thomas? He pronounces two things. He looks at Jesus when he sees him and believes, and he says, my Lord, which means I need to obey you. You're my master. No longer am I the master of my life. You are the master over me. Everything that you say, I believe, and I submit myself to. And then he says, and my God, all worship belongs to you. I'm no longer living for the things of this world. Nothing else can be number one. Nothing else can have centrality in my life. In fact, nothing can be over my life except for you. When you move from unbelief to belief, when you actually look upon the person work of Jesus, you're able to profess and to say, my Lord and my God. Have you done that today? Is that who you are? If you're a follower of Jesus, oh, let's enjoy the sweet freeness and freedom that comes by knowing that he's our Lord and our God, which means no one else and nothing else can be. And when we're struggling with the things in our life, we come back to him, we look upon his person, we look upon his work, and he says, I can trust you as my Lord and my God because of who you have proclaimed yourself to be. But then I know there have to be some here today who've not yet made that profession, who don't look to Jesus as my Lord and my God. And I look at you today and I say, you're alive, but you don't have life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I pray that you would embrace that today. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, it's a day where we come and we remember what you have done and we proclaim what you have done because unbelieving hearts and even our own hearts at times that are prone to wander, Lord, we need to hear your word afresh and to know that it's possible to believe in you because we can look upon your person, we can look upon your work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would hear the prayers of your people today, our proclamation of you as our Lord and our God. And for any of you that are here right now in this place who have not yet experienced the life, the blessing of life in Jesus, what are you waiting for? Look upon Jesus and live. Accept the testimony of who he proclaims himself to be. Look at his wounds and say, it is because of my sin, because of my guilt, because of what I have done that Christ, you had to suffer and die. And I will not look to save myself. I will not put my trust in anything else, but only in you, Jesus, because you alone have saved and you alone today reign. Would you admit that you're a sinner? Would you believe that Christ came to save? And would you confess him today as Savior and Lord? And so, Father, we rejoice that you sent Christ, that we have new life in him. And so to you be the praise and the glory both now and forevermore, not just this Sunday, but every day. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.